Welcome to episode 180 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbeal, and today my special guest is In The Money's very own Nick Tamaro. Me and Nick are going to go over three races from this past Saturday at Gulfstream Park. Those races are 5, 10, and 12, and some angles that we talk about are when looking at a race with a lot of layoff lines, it's very important to look at prior layoff form and see how well horses have done, whether it was first time out or off of previous layoff. Me and Nick also discuss how important it is to not just find the value horses on a racing day, but finding those steady, solid, 5-2, to 2-1 two, two to one short price favorites as well. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old story. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest for this week's edition of Redboard Rewind. It's been quite a while since we've had this man on. He's a friend of the family of In The Money. It's Nick Tamaro. Nick, how are you? I'm doing great, Spencer. Glad to be with you. And like you said, yeah, it's been a little, been a while. Always good to have you come back on the show. It, it was funny when I reached out, I'm like, damn, when was the last time I had Nick on? It's probably been too long as is. But like we said, glad to have you aboard. We're going to talk some Gulfstream Park racing, obviously. It's weird. Most of the year, we don't really talk a lot of Gulfstream when it's in the, you know, Gulfstream Park West, a la, you know, the lesser part of the meet. We always talk about the championship meet, and I feel like I talk about it sometimes three times a month, and I have to find another track just to kind of get it off my mind for a while. Uh, have you been playing Gulfstream Park a lot? How's your meet been going, if you have? Um, you know, I follow it pretty regularly. I do Gulfstream handicapping for Twin Spires, um, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty much on top of it every day. It's uh, it's gotten a little more difficult with the three surfaces. You know, it's it's obviously a lot of work this time of year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the the quality of the stock out there this time of year certainly makes it worth it, in my opinion. So I enjoy it. You know, I've always enjoyed looking at Gulfstream and, and betting it to a great extent. But um, it certainly doesn't make it easy. It's a it's a tough, tough place to play and tough place to make money. But, you know, you get these big cards like the last couple Saturdays it's pretty tough not to be a little drawn in by them. And, and I will admit that I certainly was. I always used to love when, you know, John Piasek, Marshall Graham, they'd always put up handle numbers and it's always Gulfstream Park at the top. And then they're still doing stuff to focus and improve their product, like adding a third surface. Do you kind of feel that with them doing it, obviously they have the money to, and now we kind of have, you know, Oakland with one surface, Gulfstream Park with three, and they kind of run around each other. It's always interesting to see how many people also just like betting just regular dirt races at Oakland when I talk like you know when I talk with Marshall about that kind of stuff and I feel for me having three you should just have three surfaces at every track as long as you can allow it and the horse stock is there because when it rains it's not going to matter like how many times we talk about in Saratoga oh man it was a rainy Saratoga meet and you know we're down to six six horses you know off the turf on the dirt and it kind of just kills those you know Wednesday to Friday cards. Do you think that you could ever see them adding a fourth surface technically or fourth track there at Saratoga or something that would be interesting in that vein? Um, Probably not at Saratoga. I do think that, 
you know, I think at Saratoga, you'll just run the risk of saying, you know, hell with it. We're going to do our best to keep everything on the turf and mm-hmm. we're going to just roll the dice on how many turf races we lose. Obviously, there's a big difference with Belmont and it sounds as if it's pretty clear at this point that a redesigned Belmont would include a third surface, a synthetic surface of sorts. And so, you know, I think the I think the difference between what was expected and what has actually played out at Gulfstream is that the horsemen were kind of hoping that the third surface was more or less just a an off the turf surface and that they would use it primarily for training and mm-hmm. um you know in just off the turf situations and then it kind of became something that was part of the program yes. so there were actually races carded for it and i remember reading an article where with a, a lot of quotes from Todd Plum, when they were introducing the surface in 2021 and he was like you know i don't want to look at the condition book and see a bunch of of races written for synthetic and so that is what has ended up happening the the other thing that i and i also think this has to do with the fact that the gulf streams had some difficulty with their turf course but they are very quick to pull races off the turf net and mainly (laughs) because you know you you don't want to run the risk of of you know beating up a turf course when you have what is otherwise a, a surface that pretty much everybody is going to run over. So, you know, I think it's it's kind of funny also, and, and I don't mean to go on a tangent, but in December of 2021, uh, I was at the the RTIP panel, the symposium in, in Tucson, and Mike Lakow, who's the racing secretary, director of racing at Gulfstream, was on a panel where the racing secretaries were all talking about the importance of giving horsemen fewer options. And how it's really essential to, you know, keep keep your conditions simple, give them fewer options. You're going to get their horses to run more, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, at the time, you know, Mike Lakow was working at a racetrack that was introducing a third surface mm-hmm. with yet a whole new set of, of, of class levels and things like that that were being introduced to that surface. So, I mean, it's a, you know, the world is not perfect and everybody has situations that may not play out as they would like them to. But it was a little ironic. I will say this though for golf for me, it, it, when you're talking about just barn capacity, there's very few tracks that will allow as many horses as golf ring does come in, in the winter months. I feel like for me, a third surface equals, you know, everyone will say, Oh, I don't want to have to learn and handicap a new surface. It adds more betting value. And it's something that I've talked to a lot with, with Brian has been, you know, just there's a very severe bias right now on the synthetic and if you can figure out where the bias is, people still aren't clicking on it because maybe not enough people are also handicapping it. They're just mostly sticking to the dirt and the turf races still. And you're finding maybe not boxcar, but I mean, if I can find, you know, okay, the, the favorite's out due to the bias and I get my horses down to three horses that all pay $10 plus, I mean, that's going to be a race I want to attack pretty heavily, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an argument for that, you know, and, and I will admit, Spencer, that I was not the synthetic surface detractor that a lot of people were mm-hmm. 10, 12 years ago when we were dealing with these things pretty pretty regularly. I enjoyed Keeneland on the synthetic quite nicely, and I felt like there were a lot of good betting opportunities both in and out of the meets that had synthetic surfaces because you invariably you'd have people betting on horses that were on the wrong surface. So you'd see dirt horses taking money in synthetic races and vice versa. And so there were some really good opportunities with that. And, you know, I knew a number of people that had angles on turfway horses at Keeneland in the, in the spring and, mm-hmm. and those kind of things. So I, I think it's a matter of just like with any other surface, find the type of race or the scenario that you're comfortable with and really kind of hone in on that. You're right. I mean, if you're somebody that, 
that really is locked into finding what you think are going to be favorable pace scenarios. I mean, you should be betting races where you think you have a favorable pace scenario with a horse that you like anyway. But, you know, if you look through a card and you notice that there's a couple of races on a synthetic surface that look like they're absolutely packed with speed and you have closers that you're interested in, I don't think you should shy away because it's run on a synthetic surface, right? I think you should just, uh, you should certainly wager accordingly. And wager accordingly. And I, I, I hear that so much. And for people, it's like, you know, well, what does that mean? It means if you're playing, you know, a hundred dollars a card and you want to bet some synthetic races, don't play twenty dollars a synthetic race. I'm mean, play five dollars if you're gonna play, you know, ten or fifteen on the turf and dirt, just because you understand that surface a little bit better. Something else that's really come to my attention, and obviously for you, you're looking at races every single day, and I'm looking to it as much as I can, but uh, everyone always talks about oh man, the favorite numbers are going up for how many favorites are winning percentage-wise, and yes, it is. I can't tell you, I feel like in the last few weeks of doing this show, how many favorites I've looked at in the races I've picked out that are just like six to five, eight to five and have no shot in my opinion. And they run off the board or just like a really weak second for you who looks at the races every single day. I mean, how many favorites do you think you're finding that maybe they're not false, but are vulnerable over what's called a 10 race card? Are we talking half the races because it's so hard to beat this game already if you can find five races where you don't like a favorite, let's say at least two of them win. That's still three races where you could think you could make some decent money. Is it people are handicapping and they're wagering too much where it's like they're trying to play the pick five and maybe not just playing winner double bets? What, what, what do you think your experience is with that? Um, oof, Good question. Kind of multi, multi-layered. Yes. Um, exactly. One of the layers to it is that, you know, the, the percentage of each pool that's made up of computerized uh, or computer-assisted wagering yeah has gone up a lot. And, you know, the scenario that that's going to run us into is that, you know, they're going to be betting what they consider to be value regardless of the price. And, you know, a CAW could take an eight to five shot and make a gigantic win bet because on their model, they're three to five. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's why we might be seeing a, a higher percentage. I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing a higher percentage of favorites win overall um, one of the other reasons I, I think, and, and there's really just no other way to put it, is that I mean, I think a lot of racing across the country is just not as competitive as it used to be. Yes, I, I don't, I don't, I think that there's a there's an overwhelming effort to card races and fill fields, and it's not really those races are not that work is not done in a way that really is focused on creating competitive situations. So you know, I, I think that's those would probably be the two things that I point to the most. I mean, it, truthfully, I'd be speaking anecdotally on, on anything. You know, I, I don't have any hardcore data in front of me. I have seen some various things that that have uh, have gone on. I know there's a you know there was I think at Aqueduct favorites were winning at forty four percent or so over the last month, and and that's not atypical of the winter. So you know that that's going to happen more in the winter than it does obviously at any other time of year, but. You know what it what it would lead to in terms of this is a handicapping show and a, and a you know a betting related show. So I would say everybody out there listening, what it should lead you to do is something you should be doing anyway. But you know in your in your regular handicapping, your and I've I learned this in contest play a long time ago. Um, you have to assess the favorite, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the first thing you should do in handicapping a race is try and figure out how the race is going to unfold. The second thing you do is assess the favorite. And if you think, especially from a handicapping contest perspective, if you think the favorite is vulnerable, then you need to start working. 
And, and, you know, on the flip side, if you think it's a situation where, boy, I mean, this horse really lays over the field, then you're not only going to going to let that affect your handicapping process, but you're probably going to let that affect your betting process as well. And you're probably going to want to stay away from a lot of those races for the most part. And just, that was so perfectly put for me, you know, we always hear about people in, in contests, they'll start handicapping, you know, last race backwards, you know, that way they, f- they figure out what they'll do in the end game. For me, it's not even so much of just handicapping one, two, three within the post position. I start at the favorite and I go by odds, every single horse down to the longest favorite. That way, if I look at the favorite and I'm like, okay, this is a horse that could seemingly win the race. If I go to the next six horses and go, man, none of these are probably going to beat this favorite. None of them make sense to, you know, challenge this horse. That's a race. A lot of people, like you would say, wouldn't play. I'll at least circle and be like, okay, well, my normal prime odds to bet a favor, if, if it's one, if it's a single contender race, is even money. If I think there's even a shot in hell, this horse will be even money, I'll circle the race, move on to the next one. I can't tell you how many times, you know, they maybe even will drift up a little bit and I'll end up with a six to five shot. And if I think they're even money, that's good enough value. Do they win? Sure, sometimes. Sometimes they lose. And I think that's what's such a good process of just analyzing the favorite first. And then I think so many people's idea of racing is find the winner, find the winner, find the winner. The objective is find the losers and find the contenders and then make wagers afterwards. Yeah, I think that's a totally, totally fair way to do it. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, just a, a real life example. I was playing in a in a live money contest at Lone Star back in December, and I, I kind of focused my entire day around making sure that I had a pretty decent amount of money so that I could make what I thought was a sizable winner in the in, uh, win bet on the horse that I thought was going to win the very last race in the contest, which was I want to say the seventh race on that Saturday at Del Mar. And, and the horse that I was talking about, I knew was probably going to be no better than seven to five, mm-hmm. but I thought the horse was, was one to five on paper. And so, you know, I, I kind of worked my day backwards in that sense and got to a, a point bankroll wise where, you know, I could bet about $1,900 on this horse and finish at a number that I thought would win. And luckily it worked out. And so I think that, you know, that's one of the important things. That's obviously something you can do in a live money scenario that you can't in a $2 win place scenario, but the it's the same thing in, in terms of assessing the favorite and understanding the, the importance of, of monitoring the favorite and how the favorite is going to get bet and, um, and, and how you want to handle them from a betting perspective. We've talked about favorites. We've talked about the synthetic surface. Let's jump into these three races and try and get some people, some ideas that they can move forward in their own handicapping process. We're going to start with race number five from this past Saturday at Gulfstream Park. It was a maiden special weight, one mile and 70 yards on that good old synthetic. I'll start off real quick with when I look through this race, a lot of horses, and you know, sometimes you hear a lot of the turf to synthetic idea that if they're bred for turf, they might take well to the synthetic. An angle I just took real easily in this race was, and I'm so happy you brought it before about Todd Pletcher, you know, with those, with those quotes. The man is 26% with a po- almost a $3 ROI, or I'm sorry, 240 ROI on the synthetic. This horse is 4-1. to one. You get Irad. It had some decent, not spectacular works in there, but definitely had enough of, you know, an overall foundation to really try and get the job done here on debut. Nothing else scared me in this race. And, I mean, this is what's been so good about the synthetic race. We talk about favorites. At least the favorite here was going to pay almost $10 if you found that horse. I thought another horse like Suge McGahee's Windsor Park was also interesting. This one had a little bit better works, but had a lot of gate works. And I don't know about you, but when I see four gate works, that doesn't tell me they're just trying to get this one in and out, you know, a couple times out of the gate. This tells me this one has a really hard trouble breaking out of the gate. 
I think that's a good that's a good assessment. Um, also, clearly going out for a barn that's not really going to put the screws to their horses on debut. So I think there's a yeah pretty fair chance at that point that you would think that the horse may might be a little slow, might have a little bit of difficulty hitting their stride coming out of the gate. Um, you know, I thought that, and this was a race that was taken off the turf. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was originally scheduled for the turf and ended up at a mile and seventy on the um, on the tapita. Um, you know, the interesting thing about that was that the rail horse just so is a was actually not a, a homebred, but a horse that was by Justify out of Turbulent Descent. And, you know, most people will remember it was about 12 years ago. Turbulent Descent won the test and was a very, very nice uh, female sprinter from the West Coast and uh, was very impressive throughout her career. Um, she has been much more productive thus far while really not being particularly productive as a broodmare. She's produced one horse that was really any good. And the horse was a group stakes winner in Europe on the turf. So you end up giving this justify, uh, turbulent descent cult to Chad Brown. And of course you're going to, you're going to run him on the turf mm-hmm. and that's what they did. And so he kind of caught my attention in my original handicapping of the race. I thought, you know, well, Chad's a pretty sharp guy. He's one that. That's going to get a horse to the surface over which they, you know, they probably are going to be at their best. And then you referenced Todd Pletcher. And, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about when Keeneland had a synthetic surface. Todd was very good at Keeneland. You know, he had a, he had a really didn't go down very much percentage wise those years. And, and, you know, he won the bluegrass, I want to say twice when it was run on, on a synthetic surface. So uh, yeah, interesting to see how his horses would run respectively. King's Fortune and the light, the more fancied was always going to be Muta Weed, who had had a little, a little bit of a trip in his turf debut, but improved very clearly with experience and distance and a surface switch. So those were kind of the horses that I focused on the most. I was relatively chalky in that respect, although I will admit that when just so's odds drifted up the way they did, I was uh, I was plenty intrigued to, to have a little bit of backing there. Just so for Nick, I'm going to try King's Fortune here first time out for the good old Toddster. Let's see who gets it done right now. And uh, they're off. A step slow to get going was Mutawid. Sarah's Shaman was away alertly and reaches out for the early lead. Speed from Captain Jack and Carlin Clan works between horses. These three across the course. Very wide on that first turn was Ghost Coast with Windsor Park just ahead of him and angling over. Saving ground at the rail is Jess So, then Gypsy Chief, and King's Fortune. He's about seven lengths behind. Second last early is Mutawid. The early trailer is Lucky, Lucky Luke. Loose up top, Carlin Clan strides clear to a four-length lead. Sarah Shaman is there second from Captain Jack, who's now third. At the rail, it's Jess So. He's a joint fourth at this point. Up on his outside goes Jamestown. Then it's a length and a half back to the team of Ghost Coast and King's Fortune. Mutawid is next. Saving ground is Gypsy Chief. He's in a bit tight, this favorite. On his outside goes Windsor Park. Still out the back, the trailers are at Sarah, or rather at the back of the field. Lucky, lucky Luke is the last of all as they make their way to the far turn. Loose up top, Carlin Clan and Junior Alvarado committed for home through a big half mile of 47-3, and three, but their strides are shortening. Carlin Clan all in. Here's Sarah Shaman, the first to move. Windsor Park on the outside is up into second. Jamestown winding up while wide on the course. Sarah Shaman between horses. Lucky Lucky Luke is underway from the back. Trying to rally between horses is the favorite Gypsy Chief, then Ghost Coast as they run to the top of the stretch. Still in front, Carlin Clan. He found another gear. Sarah Shaman is there second. Jesso is at the rail. Jam- 
Jamestown fans out. Lucky Lucky Luke and Mutawat on the grandstand side. Who do you like here? They're across the course and swarming in. Now with a good late kick, King's Fortune rising to the occasion, and King's Fortune takes the lead. King's Fortune and Irad Ortiz win. Just so was second. Mutawat's in a show photo, and I think he wins over Gypsy Chief, who's fourth in 140 and three. And King's Fortune does get the job done. 71, the winning buyer, looking at 1440 for the winning mutual. Just so runs second, 1020 for the place, 68 for the second place buyer. And something you brought up there is that's so important. When a horse's odds drift up, and it's something that we don't know how good they're going to be at, this is the point as a beginning handicapper where don't be afraid to take prices on these types. Be afraid to take lower prices on horses that, like we had said, a first-time starter from a barn that doesn't really do well, a la, you know, if Shug's horse was the favorite in this race. You can take prices on just so. And listen, you always hear people complain like, oh, I thought this horse would win. He ran a 68, but he ran second at such a good price. You can't expect more out of that horse. I thought that was a great race, and it just ended up that King's Fortune just ran a little bit better. Exactly. Well put. Yep, can't can't argue with any of that. Um, second best on the day, and, and probably a horse that will not stay in the maiden ranks for much longer. Worth noting, I guess, from a little bit of a tactical perspective, that uh, just so was the closest to the pace that that all things considered kind of came apart and and still ran well. So, yeah, I would imagine he'll break his maiden probably the next time he surfaces anywhere. Carlin Clan uh, went on a pretty ambitious sort of gambit out there <laughs> trying to, to wire the field and, and ended up getting tired. And he might be a horse that ultimately wants a cutback, might not get a real opportunity at that. You know, at a real distance, maybe until Belmont, looking at you know seven furlongs or so. But uh, no shame in 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 the winner, uh, who is a a horse that bred obviously on the dam side. Of, it's a it's a, a, a international pedigree, mm -hmm. and a horse that obviously has some ability. And you know, one of the th things that we saw on Friday, obviously, was Irad winning left and right, and Todd Pletcher wins left and right pretty regularly in uh, in South Florida. So no surprise there. I think we'll say just to, to end this race with this, you know, just so at 980 to run second, sure you have a losing wager there. You're probably not going to get better than two to one, five to two on next time out. Still be right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I would say just to don't be afraid knowing that you lost money a nine to one shot to still not come back. And let's say you don't even make your original, you know, wager back on, on this horse. And just so at least know that you had the right idea in this race. The horse ran perfectly fine. It wasn't like the horse ran up the track. You can still come back. You can write that note, like, ran credibly on debut, ran against trainer and jockey who have been red hot recently. And that just adds to the, you know, more combined where if this horse does go off at five to two next time out and you think he's even money, you have a ton of value there as well. Yeah, I agree. I think that's uh, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I think it's one where you, you'd probably be willing to understand that he's going to be a bit shorter price and you'll just kind of work with it. Race number 10 is the next one we're going to go over. It's the grade three forward gal, seven furlongs on the dirt. How are we going to start off on this one, Nick? You know, I thought this was a really interesting race, Spencer, and I think it it brought together some horses that ultimately might not be Oaks Phillies, but what they what they are, um, as at least for right now, are very talented. And and I think we could see them really have a say in some of the big races around one turn throughout 2023. Uh, red carpet ready, you know, you, you really don't often see a horse win by 10 lengths on debut at 37 to 1. And so she was a horse that obviously kind of flew under the radar 
through much of the uh, of the summer into the fall. And then Rusty Arnold brought her right back, and she was victorious in the Fern Creek at better than 7-1, to one, in large part because Key of Life, the big favorite in that race, finished third. And Red Carpet Ready really took it to him from the start. Uh, that day kind of sat outside of Twirled and went by her and looked good. Twirled came right back and won a, a two-life allowance race in her next start. So I think it was easy to believe that Red Carpet Ready would, would be a, a major factor. I liked her anatomically. Um, atomically was cutting back off the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies where she chased that hot pace and um, and and now was going seven-eighths, which I thought was probably a better trip for her based on some of the races she ran when she was in Jose Pynchon's care. I know the public also had some affinity for Undervalued Asset, who was a, a pretty solid debut winner at Aqueduct. I didn't love her debut. I, I think there were people who were overrating it just a tad. So I focused most of my wagering attention on the uh, three, eight, and nine um, from a multi-race perspective, and then I, I, I boxed the three and eight in the exacta. For, for me in this race, it just always came down to what seemed to be, okay, what horse do I think can run well off of a layoff that, you know, can still get by these horses that have maybe a race under their belt? And a horse like Undervalued Asset had such a slow-paced win that first time, ran a credible buyer at 72, but was also a favorite. For me, the, in growing as a handicapper, easy trips tend to make me just want to kind of spark that buyer down a little bit. Red Carpet Ready, yes, won on the slop and debut with a 68, but ran so off, off of a hot pace, if you look at the time four numbers, and a huge number. So this one was not supposed to win. Yes, winning in the slop on debut, it kind of adds to that, you know, oh, long shots, love the slop kind of thing. Came right back, wins the Fern Creek. The fact that this one is already won off of, you know, debut and off of a quote-unquote layoff makes me really excited to see this one, especially at 4-1. to one. Ended up obviously getting chopped down a bit as we had three horses go off at that, you know, five to two, two to one range. I, I just looking through the rest of the ways atomically was the other, only other one that I was really afraid of per se and going out of that breeders cup juvenile, but still it took a race under this one's belt to win from five and a half to seven. And that was also a slow paced race. So I have a horse that I think is going to be a little bit, you know, more forwardly placed and can outstand these hardcore, hardcore duels. I thought red carpet Ray was an absolute standout in this race. Yeah, I, I, there's no argument from me. I mean, it's uh, this is a horse that had looked very good coming into the race at Churchill, and, and the workout reports on Saturday were favorable. So there was reason to believe that she would be a pretty tough customer. Red carpet ready for myself. We're going with atomically red carpet ready. A little bit of Positino sunset for Nick. Let's see who can get it done in the forward gal right now. In the 41st running of the forward gal. Atomically was off in traffic and a step slow to get going was undervalued asset. So two of the four favorites not quick out of there. The literally leader is Arella Star from Twice as Sweet, who's away racing in second. Red Carpet Ready well situated early while racing in third. Then undervalued asset and Atomically, who's still in traffic. Splitting horses at Apropos. Down at the rail goes Flakes. Second last is Positano Sunset. And the trailer is Adelise's Smile. 22-3 and three for the opening quarter speed as they race to the half-mile point. It's twice as sweet on the inside and Arella Star on the outside. Their heads apart. Red carpet ready, three wide and on the go. At the rail, it's Flakes from between atomically, three wide and moving up is undervalued asset. Then Apropos and Positano Sunset, Adelise's smile is last. Around the far turn at the 5-16th, it's Red Carpet Ready who makes a narrow lead. Up on the outside, undervalued asset is now into second. Back to third, twice as sweet. Atomically is being asked to quicken while racing fourth and angling to the clear for a run. Positano Sunset is next, then Apropos, and they're at the top of the stretch. The opening half was 45-4. and four. Luis Saez asking Red Carpet Ready to kick. 
kick away. And she's doing just that with an eighth of a mile to go. Undervalued asset is second and atomically is down the stand side. But with a 16th to go, red carpet ready indeed. She's looking good. She wins by three in the end. And red carpet ready does get the job done. 87, the winning buyer. Looking at a solid 660 for the winning mutual. And we had talked about it a little bit, you know, off the air. If you can find horses that have a 660 for a winning mutual, but you think that they should be even money, that's $2.40 of value. And in a game like this where they take, where there's so much takeout, it just like these are the ones that can keep you afloat when you go through those losses of, you know, five or 10 losers in a row, knowing that you have horses like this that can just re spark that comeback back into the green. Yeah, totally agree. And I mean, one of the things that that you can do with it also is that you know, these some of these multi-race sequences at Gulfstream can be so lucrative. And if you can link them together with a couple of decent opinions, you know, we didn't obviously didn't cover uh, those races. But on either side of Red Carpet Ready, you had graded stake races won by Todd Pletcher trainees that were both favored, but, um, you know, the double from red carpet ready to Cairo consort. And of course, if you had a ticket on this double, you would have gotten a little nervous when they left the gate, yes. but um, that, that thing paid almost $25. Yeah. Right. And that's a, That's, you know, that's a good payoff. So uh, those are the kind of things that you have to remember that we're, we're talking for the most part about really lucrative situations with horses. The, the major dude red carpet ready double paid $20. So, you know, there were, there were opportunities there to take that two almost two and a half to one and um and turn it into some pretty decent value i think if i remember reading through the barry meadow books like when you make your odds line if you have it as chalk chalk based off of your contenders as long as it pays eleven dollars for a buck you should be making that wager and it doesn't sound like oh my god you hit an eleven dollar exact or eleven dollar double but like over time those will add to the bankroll and listen if you want to sit on your hands for you know five or six races a day but you find these lucrative spots like you had said Graded stake races, more money's in the pool, but either side you're finding favorite, favorite. I mean, I've seen guys who just hammer, you know, ABC style, but they'll they'll have this nine times with three A's and they'll just, they'll end up, you know, making a sizable score. Whereas other people who are putting, you know, nine deep into a pick five and they're, you know, crying because the favorite one. Yeah, right. And that's a great point and probably a topic for, you know, an even larger conversation because are, are you the kind of multi-race player that is looking for a sequence that you're trying to bet 20 times or are you looking for something that might offer, you know, 20 times the payoff and you're comfortable having 50 cents or a dollar on it? And I know that I've I have struggled um, and it's 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 something that I try to study a lot about my own wagering and figure out where I make the mistakes. I've struggled finding the situations where it was a sequence where I should have been hitting the repeat button a number of times and just really crushing it as opposed to, uh, to, to waiting for an opportunity where there might be a little bit more chaos along the way in the sequence. And it might, you know, pay a little bit more when all was said and done. So yeah, that's, that's something that's important to figure out about your own horseplay and where your comfort zone is because you'll burn a lot of money trying to hit these things numerous times. If it really is just not, what you're all that comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a, that's a difficult exercise. I will say this with the other two horses that ran underneath undervalued asset atomically. Botsino sunset ran fine. Me at 66, not really one of the top trio, but I'm excited for atomically next time out. Like I had said, the fact that this one won second time out for Jose pension. Now we're kind of going to get second time out for Todd. I think that makes this one very interesting. Probably not going to get a good price, but definitely one that I want to uh, 
see you next time. I was very impressed with Undervalued Asset. Usually those horses that run those slow type of races, they maybe, you know, will improve the buyer a little bit. They're not going to improve 10 points, which this one did. Very excited to, you know, it's weird. You can find the winner in this race, but you're almost more excited to find the horses that lost for next time out to see what kind of value you get on those types. Agreed completely. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I don't I don't know what to do with atomically moving forward. I think undervalued asset still has a lot of upside just being her second start. And generally, uh, Chad Brown horses run better as the year goes on. Let's move on to the last race of this pod. Race number 12 from Gulfstream Park is the grade three Holy Bull. One on one sixteen miles on the dirt. Nick, how we uh, getting done here with this three year old uh, stake race? Yeah, you know, at least I was on record with this uh, ahead of time picking Rocket Can. So, I don't, uh, you know, your, your show and your format is great. I love it. I love the concept. But you tried it when there are situations where you were actually right. It's like, oh, you want to take a little credit, huh? <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, this is a scenario where I, I did actually going back to when when uh, when PTF and I did the uh, the Kentucky Derby Future Wager preview show a few weeks ago, I talked a lot about Rocket Can and how I thought he was a, a little bit of an interesting horse at a huge price. I think he ended up being 80 or 90 to one in that future pool, mainly because I love the dam side. The second dam is a horse named Tough Tizis, who won the Ruffian and was a distance horse that was good at a mile and an eighth. And um, and so I thought, you know, this is a horse that's probably going to get better with a lot more ground. He's an into mischief. He clearly improved when he started to go long. So I was kind of a Rocket Can fan. My concern about this field was that uh, I didn't. I thought that Cyclone Mischief's big improvement last time out that some some of it had to do with Lasix, mm -hmm. and that was my big opinion was that you know we were going to see a regression from him not only because he was going two turns again, which you know he might be a little bit better at one turn, but but the bigger problem was that he's not going to be treated with Lasix. So my opinion was that Rocket Ken would win. Um, I didn't really have much of an underneath thought to it, but the majority of my of my multi-race bets, I uh, I singled Rocket Can in the back end of it. I used a little bit of Cyclone Mischief as a backup, and that was it. I mean, and you brought such a good point. For me, it's not even so much the Lasix. Listen, Dale does great next time out winners, which which stuns me, 28%, $4.44 ROI. I just I feel like I've seen this too many times where Dale finds a horse. He's had a couple over the last couple of years that have done very, very well. Uh, Dennis's moment. Yeah, there you go. It's like, I knew it was an M. I just want to say mischief. I knew that wasn't it. Um, that runner, you know, always had that big buyer come up and then would not run so well next time out. And I wonder if that was a little bit in the back of my head. I see a 90. The race before was a slow paced race that did. He didn't get the job done. The fact that he brought up the Lasix didn't even really occur to me, but that's another great spot there. And then you look at the rest of these horses in the field, you know, like you said, Rocket Can. It, it was a slow improvement, and yes, we have a layoff, but, you know, Bill Mott, 22%. You know, he's decent with the great stake runners with a 27%. And Junior, for me, I think is still, it's hard to say he's one of the most underrated riders still, but I, I've i always felt just growing up in the Naira circuit, him and Jose Lazcano, if I wanted a turf rider, they would be the ones I would like to lean on. But Junior's gotten so much better of late just on both surfaces, and just I, I want him on these type of horses. Listen, was the price great? No, at five to two. But when you're so, so against the favorite, and we can talk a little bit even about Lord Miles being that third choice at, you know, paying sub four dollars, the source, you know, improved. And then what was a closer in a fast paced race that just missed against Legacy Isle, who I didn't even, you know, 
really like in this spot. So it's kind of hard for me to put Lord Miles in my contenders. When I can swipe those two away, it's kind of the same thing as the last race. Rocky Kansas seems to be the goods for me. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's a good point about Junior. I think a little little birdie may have gotten in Junior's year and, and encouraged him to start riding his, his dirt mounts, especially a little bit more forwardly. Mm-hmm. Um, he's obviously riding with a lot of confidence right now anyway, having won on uh, Art Collector the week before in the Pegasus. But uh, yeah, there's there's certainly an edge to that at Gulfstream, no doubt. Rocket can for me and Nick. Let's see if we can finish out this podcast in style. Now. They're off in the Holy Bowl. Beautiful start for the favorite Cyclone Mischief, but he wants no part of the yearly lead as West Coast Cowboy shoots forward toward the rail. Mr. Bob, he's up to challenge, and Mr. Bob lands a narrow advantage in the run to the first turn. West Coast Cowboy is there second from between horses. Cyclone Mischief is in tight. Legacy Isle works on his outside. Rocket Can is on the far outside. Then Lord Miles from between horses. Il Maricolo and lagging behind last is Shadow Dragon. The quarter time was 23-4. and four. It's a reasonable pace, putting up the numbers. Joel Rosario and Mr. Bob in front by a length. Legacy Isle second, West Coast Cowboy third. Rocket Can is on the far outside and in between horses, Cyclone Mischief. Back from there, it's Il Maricolo ahead of Lord Miles, patiently ridden while second last, and the trailer is Shadow Dragon. They make their way to the first finish line in the 2023 Holy Bull Stakes. Mr. Bob the target through a 48 and four half mile. Legacy Isle latched onto him second. West Coast Cowboy is at the rail third. Rocket Can is in the clear for Alvarado. He's only two lengths behind. Cyclone Mischief patiently handled by Gaffleone between horses. Then it's Lord Miles and Il Maricolo. Still at the back is Shadow Dragon. They round the far turn. The pace picks up and Legacy Isle shoves the neck on top. In tight West Coast Cowboy from the back. Shadow Dragon is underway. Rocket Can let go in the red colors as they run to the top of the stretch. It's Rocket Can who comes away with the lead. Toward the outside, Shadow Dragon with an upset threat. Cyclone Mischief needs to do better than that. Legacy Isle is next and they're at the top of the stretch. Rocket Can tries to finish it up. Shadow Dragon takes aim. 16th to go. It's Rocket Can responding on the outside in Shadow Dragon. They come to the finish. It's Bill Mott. It's Junior Alvarado again. It's Rocket Can to win the Holy Bull by a length and Rocket Can got the job done. 720, the winning mutual. 82, the winning buyer. So we don't get improvement off of that last race, but we see some bombs underneath. So it's it's always, I'm not going to say gratifying, but like you had said, also having the winner out earlier. To me in this race, to see out of the three favorites, pick the winner and then see the other two run so poorly, I feel like this is a race I had a very, very good understanding of. And it's these type of races that if you have a notebook and you're like, okay, what races did I feel like a handicapped well and then crush wagering wise or just crush watching the race, circle those races and be like, okay, I feel like I'm starting to understand these horses a little bit better. So when Lord Miles comes back and Cyclone Mischief, if they do come back, you can assess better and then like, okay, is this a better spot for them or is it a worse spot for them? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and I think as far as, you know, as our opinion went, some days chicken, some days feathers, right? <laughs> we were right about this one, and it was uh, it was a good scenario to have it done. But I know I felt pretty pretty good about the half-mile pull with the way Rocket Ken was traveling. I'll admit that his stablemate Shadow Dragon put a pretty big scare into him around the turn. Yeah. I think Shadow Dragon's performance is probably a bit of an indictment of the race as a whole. And it makes me a little skeptical as to you know how, how much of a real derby 
trial, you know, Derby trail horse uh, rocket can is. Um, but, the, you know, on the flip side, there's a lot of racing out there still to happen. And there will be a lot of opportunities for him, you know, to prove himself probably twice more before the the Kentucky Derby because Bill Mott's a guy who likes to run his horses. So good. Nice to see the good step forward. Good to see a, a decent enough opinion validated at a, uh, a relatively tolerable mutual. Interesting for, like I had said, the 82 now back to back. Can we see this one take another step forward? For me, this is why I love the Derby Trail so much. It's, you know, we're going to have the Derby Future Pools come out. Everyone's going to hammer these horses that run so well. I'm not going to say they forget because they know, but there's still four or five months of racing. Injuries happen. Stuff in training happens. And this is why I think the Derby Trail in general is just one of the best things in sports because you're watching, you know, everyone talks about the 20 that make it to the gate. But there's, you know, whatever it was announced, I think the other day, like 300 are, you know, of Triple Crown nominated. And this is what makes the sport so special. Yeah, totally. Right. Everybody's got a dream right now. And there aren't that many there aren't that many people that are that are shut out of it. So it's a good it's a good situation in that respect. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, the best thing is that we'll see and we'll get an opportunity for most of them to run and, and see how it shakes out. So yeah, these, these weeks are a lot of fun. I mean, basically from here until I think it's from now until the third weekend of March, we have at least one graded stake prep every Saturday. Mm -hmm. And then after that, that's that sort of dead weekend between the Tampa Bay Derby and the, uh, and the Louisiana Derby. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you know, it'll be all guns for, the first Saturday in May, Louisiana Derby, Arkansas Derby, and Florida Derby on the same day, and then Santa Anita Derby, Wood, and Bluegrass. And, you know, by that point, we're a month away, and we're starting to formulate our wagers already. Very excited for that. But that is the end of this podcast. I do want to thank my special guest, Nick Tamro, for coming on. Nick, what do you have cooking up for either ITM or Twin Spires and all the other jazz you got going on? Oh, plenty going on, no doubt about it. I, I joined Pete today for a recap of the last week's racing, which will, which is out already, a little video there too. And I think he and I are going to discuss some of the racing at Tampa this weekend later on in the week for the uh, Sam F. Davis card. And I know that uh, I'll be around on Twin Spires with Gulfstream and Santa Anita expert picks. So a lot of fun. Always fun to talk with you, Nick. Uh, we'll talk again very soon. Sounds great, my friend. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I just want to thank everyone who listens to this podcast and the other podcasts on the In The Money Media Network. also want to thank my special guest, Nick Tamaro, for coming on, talking all things at Gulfstream Park from this past Saturday's Loaded State Card. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl. We will see you next time.